Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And on this episode, we get right into it. What is it like to be a young, black, male, American entrepreneur living in the, quote, hood in Minneapolis, which, as you know, is where George Floyd was killed? Today, a very big conversation about social change, entrepreneurship, Black Lives Matter, and a whole lot more with author, entrepreneur, and speaker, Denarius Lewis. And in my opinion, uh, Denarius represents a voice that is not being heard enough right now. And that is the voice of young African-American entrepreneurs. Denarius has gone from homeless to successful. His personal story is an inspiring one. And frankly, I think we need to all be asking ourselves, how do we foster an environment where there are a lot more Denarius Lewises? You see, Denarius, amongst many entrepreneurial things, is the founder of Optimum Outreach, a telecom brokerage firm. And in this conversation, we go deep on what it's like to be him and his thoughts on the whole thing. This is a very big, inspiring conversation at a seminal time in our history. We're sponsored by my good friends at Oracle NetSuite, the number one cloud business system. Check out netsuite.com slash different today. That's netsuite.com slash different. And visit my friends at Splunk, S-P-L-U-N-K.com slash D, the number two, and the letter E, and learn how to turn data into doing. That's splunk.com slash D to E. And if you're a business leader or a marketer and you care about driving growth, creating and dominating categories, why not check out Lockhead on Marketing? It's the number one marketing podcast that is hated by many and loved by few. Now, hey-ho, let's go. So how you been, man? been holding up. I'm, I'm obviously, you know, in the world of politics, there's a lot of things happening and happened in Minneapolis since our last conversation, but, um, things been holding up been crutching along and just, um, keeping my, keeping my head up. How about yourself? You know, I think on a, uh, I think we're doing great on a COVID adjusted basis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like the quest, the response to how are you needs to sit in the context of, well, we got a global pandemic, a massive recession and a massive fight for social justice. Yep. Given all that, we're doing okay. <laughs> I woke up today, you know, my hair is still growing. I'm still, I'm still blessed. So um, <laughs> that's one thing I always have to remind myself because as you really, like if you break it down, we have so many things happening in such a compact time in the, you know, the first six months of 2020, um, now entering the second stage. So it's definitely been eye-opening. Well, and so tell me, I, I, I'm dying to know, you know, I loved our last conversation for One Life. I know this may sound corny, but I'll just say it. I kind of fell in love with you a little, a little bro- <laughs> bromance for me. <laughs> and, and I would just love it, Denarius, if you could put me in your mind. You, know, in your, the, you have a very interesting lens on the world as a young black entrepreneur who came from nothing. You know, I want to get into your story, but I just want to know, what does the world look like to you? At one point, the world looked like travesty, tragedy. And um, very depressed, filled with depression. If we look at all the pain and agony of the world at large, we, we sometimes miss the reflection of how we can add any different change or any value towards what we what we're pointing the fingers at. So 
I've switched that paradigm and I just see hope. So I always see the world uh, filled with hope, with passion and seeing the alternative than what we're currently facing. So whether that's in politics, whether that's how humans interact with humans, um, how do we survive this pandemic? How do we survive humanity? How do we survive the environment of lack of air and oxygen? We're deforestation. Like we can go on a very bright topic, but as I singularly try to do my best to add value um, and find value each day, I see the world as just a way where we can, if we just see each other as one another, we can build just as one another. But uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of friction. So I mean, I have uh, mixed feelings of how I view the world. To be very blunt, I want to be very hopeful, but um, my you know my criticism is there, and you know it's a middle finger. It's a really you know a fuck you to the like to the establishment of like why is it you know why is the world the way it is when we hope for it to be different. And so I'm not the only person who hopes this, but I'm just one of the individuals doing my best to add some uh, some everlasting change. Hmm. And how does it feel uh, for you living where you live? Because you're sort of at ground zero for at least where this started. Yeah. At least the racial part of it and, and the fight for justice part of it. Yeah. So this, unfortunately, this is not the first situation that happened in Minnesota. We had Jamar Clark, Jamar Clark a couple of years ago. We had Flando Castile. Uh, and now, now we're having George Floyd and, um, George Floyd was killed, uh, on the same day as my birthday. So as I'm celebrating my birthday, May 25th, I'm getting calls, I'm getting text messages. Hey, did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? Um, on top of happy birthday. So as I got, to, got through the clutter and went through my, you know, went online and saw what was happening literally 13 minutes away from my house, um, it's now transpired into, um, a big social movement internationally towards, you know, the things that people have been striving for for many years. So I'm really at grind level. Um, every day we are having marches, protests. This Friday, I'm um, speaking um, at an um, event my, my, my friends were all putting together called Youth Rise. Uh, a bunch of nonprofits coming together to do a, a youth-led march in solidarity of Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd Fund. So um, as I'm at the ground level, um, you know, not only protesting, seeing the being at the physical location of where all this happened, I'm seeing not only myself, but also people in my network being a part of the everlasting ch- conversation. Everyone wants to have this conversation, but until you actually put yourself in, you know, take action and put yourself on the ground level and see why people are protesting, seeing why people are frustrated, seeing why, you know, there has to be a, a reform behind everything that's been created. Um, it's just, uh, it's a never ending conversation because. I, you know, despite whatever age you are, you're at, you, you, we've had this conversation in the sixties. Are you, you going to call me old again? Is that what you're getting warmed <laughs> up to do? No, no, no. No. <laughs> you're mature aged. So I'm always delicate with, with age because some people like their age and some people age or grace. Some people don't. So, but I, I say, I, that I like I, my <laughs> age, but I don't think I'm aging with grace. <laughs> Well, personality, you, you're, you're young, you're, you're vivacious, so you're, you're doing well. But that's how I see it. Like, I, I, I really want to, like, hug the pain out of people because, you know, sometimes we're born with pain that we, get, we don't know how to address, and it turns into hatred towards another person that we've never even had a conversation towards. So if I want to break down how a person can point fingers at a, at a, at a difference or something, you know, we're all humans trying to survive in this world. You know, we all need oxygen, water, food. So let's do our best to uh, gather those resources. Yeah. Now, I wanted to talk to you about some specifics. We just had David Crane on the podcast, and he's a Stanford professor, uh, former business guy, and now he's the leader of a group called Govern for California that has been working for quite some time to drive political and social change in California through uh, supporting elected officials that they think are on the right side of what 
should be done versus the wrong side. And whether you agree with him or not, I had this conversation with him because what I wanted to understand in Arias was what does it truly take to make social and political change happen? And this is a business guy that's been working for at least 15 or so years to do that. He was an advisor to Governor Schwarzenegger, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, one of the things he said to me, I said to him, you know, what change do you think is going to come as a result of Black Lives Matter? And he said, and I'm paraphrasing, but essentially, unless there's a specific set of requests and initiatives that get driven over time, he said, we could actually have very little change as a result of Black Lives Matter and as a result of George Floyd's murder and sort of the what feels like an awakening. And, and I found it a little bit of a surprising comment, but I've been soaking in it ever since he said it. And I think there's real power in what he's saying. And so uh, that leads me to a big question, which is what are the things that you think programmatically, structurally uh, need to change for us to truly have a breakthrough in equality here? Having the conversation which you're, that you're wanting to have right now. Right now, we're still having the debate to why this is even a conversation. Racism is not real. And so <laughs> having that first conversation is really like, let's actually sit down and break this down. Let's not be defensive. Let's actually break down the facts. Uh, once we get down that, down that road, then let's break down defunding the police department. A lot of people want to defund the police department. And it, the funds is not completely defunding a police department. It is taking funds that can be allocated to the community to allocate for individuals in mental health spaces, public schools, um, different programs as, as things are allocated. Black Lives Matter is, is there's no genuine leader of the Black Lives Matter movement. There are chapters. So in Minneapolis, for my own experience, we have Minneapolis, we have St. Paul, we have another group in St. Cloud. And for us to end that change at a national level, it has, we we're learning strategically, we have to start at a local level. And so as I know that we're what we're doing here in Minneapolis and how we're able to come to the table with a concrete list of, of demands of, hey, this is what we want. We all know there's a prison school pipeline. It's following the dollar signs. So um, there's a bit list, you know, follow the dollar signs. And people just don't understand that if you follow the money, <laughs> you'll follow, you'll find the honey. And a lot of the money isn't going to. <laughs> I, um, hate to <laughs> I hate to interrupt you, Daenerys. Can you say that again for me? It just sounded so good. <laughs> When you follow the money, you'll find the honey. You'll find the pot of gold. I'm telling people. So um, when we break down this dollar signs, it's, it's going to politicians, it's going to sources, but it's not going back to the community. So when we talk about this argument of Black Lives Matter or, you know, the, 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 the other argument, a black on black crime. I mean, we really have to debunk why there isn't even uh, a color towards crime. Crime is crime by humans. And so that's another debate, another bigger, but with humans committing crimes and if we target a specific uh, demographic, we're, we're going to continue to push a certain narrative. And the narrative continues to happen in and out and in and out. And if we really break down statistics, there's more of Europeans in, the, in, North, in North America than there are at times minorities. Now that's changing because obviously the times have changed. This is a more open country. But really, people want to be treated as humans. People want to be viewed as humans. And we want, we're still having the same conversation that Martin Luther King had, Michael Max had. And now we're in the 2020s, <laughs> many years away from that conversation. And we're still saying, hey, our, our, we're still being killed on the streets by police brutality. Hey, we're still living in poverty from 
from years of being set free, but not actually given a system to be a part of. The list goes on and on of all these different roadblocks and loopholes that minorities have had to go through because we're not, the system wasn't built for us. It's not as if the founding fathers were, you know, very diverse. No, there's the people that work for them were, were diverse, but that's not the case. And, and there weren't any founding mothers, best I can tell, at least, at least right. on the documents, right? <laughs> and, and to even go on this banter, to even talk about this reform, we want to reform the laws. We want to reform this. We have to reform how America is, is today. For what America was in, in the 1800s, it's not what it is in the 2020s. So there's a lot of things that we're actually going to talk about reform of how laws want to be enacted. Things have changed so dramatically that we're, we're still not having that conversation. Yes, our times have changed, but our laws are so stagnant. And that's why we're, we're sick and tired of being sick and tired. And that's why you're seeing the social uproar. We've been having this conversation for so many years about police brutality, not to go in a political conversation, but as a person of color that wants to progress in life, I want to start a family. I want to build a business. I've had to, I've had these conversations growing up with my mother um, of how to navigate a very white world. And so if we're going to really talk about um, how, do, how do you view the world, I view the world as a black man who has to maneuver through it however I do. I mean, no, I'm a very laid back person. I love wearing sweats, but you wouldn't believe it. But again, it's the image. Imagery is very important because I know if I go on the show and I'm wearing the, 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 my slacks and all that stuff, I may not be taken seriously. And again, I have to continue to put myself or show other people that look like me that there's another way out. Because I essentially, in my, my own um, acquiring of my own home, I live in a high risk area, which people would say is the hood. And I did it intentionally because I want to live in a community that looks like me. I've lived in communities that haven't looked like me. And the discomfort that I've had with my own, in, you know, entering my home, walking to my neighborhood, you know, stuff in that stuff. So when I see the world as a large, I always, you know, have my blinders, but I always see it in a, in a, in a light of um, hope for a better future. These riots, like, What's this motivation? This What's going on? Why? So to break it down, the riots aren't being done by people who are in the community. We have learned that white supremacists and different people from outside of the states have infiltrated our, like, our protests. And, have, you know, really, that's really what's been happening and have been causing these things because... In the black community, we're not going to burn down our own and our only limited resources. I live in this community. We're not going to burn down the one spot that everyone goes to for, for the post, our mail services. Like our black owned mail, mail office guy, uh, was, uh, was burned down. So as I'm breaking down a lot of the stuff that's happening, uh, we have, um, it's now called the Minnesota Freedom Writers, um, which are community members in, um, North Minneapolis that have come together who are all licensed to carry. And we're, we're policing our own community. And so at night, we have basically the Black Panther policing our own communities because we are, we have people that are coming to our community throwing bombs and shootings. And since the death of George Floyd, we have had 110 people get shot in Minneapolis, in North Minneapolis, with, with all the stuff that's happening with COVID, with the riots, with the protests. And so I... I know because we have people on the ground level that I'm on the Facebook groups pages with. I'm, I'm in community network, neighborhood outlets, seeing that, Hey, we have someone that just sped off that just that's wearing this. We have, we, we, I'm watching literally people, our, our community being torn down from outsiders. And in Minnesota right now, uh, we have a hotline. If you see a car that has 
outside license plates, you know, that aren't Minnesota, we re- you can report that in because we have such a such a, a high number of cars that are just that have come out of the blue. They're from Arizona. They're from Philadelphia. They're from around really the nation. But we also have a, a fluctuation of cars that are completely tinted with no license plates. And I have an entire gallery of just cars that we are continuing to see. And even if you buy a car that's used, it still has that, you know, the dealership plate in the back until they get that. These don't have that. They just have a, you know, they're tinted. Even if it's an ugly car that has a cracked windshield, rusted, it still should have that. I'm pinpointing this is what's happening. And people are driving more erratic that have those cars that necessarily people wouldn't drive through traffic like this in Minnesota. We know cops are everywhere. You know, we know certain areas where cops are hiding. So as I'm like really at the ground level and seeing like, seeing that this is not us doing this work because we're, I live in North Minneapolis. I live in Minneapolis. I, I, South Minneapolis is where George Floyd was killed. If you come to Minnesota, you will see such a fluctuation of people coming together from all walks, really helping one another. And it's such, it's such a tearful thing to see because it, it took such a tragedy for us to really come together and help one another because you know, anyone that saw that can see that if it was a white person, black person, whatever, if you put your neck on someone, your knee on someone's neck and they're asking for help, like it's, it's, a, that's a compassion. That's a humanity thing. That's not a right versus wrong. Like this guy needs to breathe, get your knee off his neck. And like, there's a lot that goes into it. So, you know, the anarchists, if we have to burn down some businesses and to get, to make some ruckus, to, you know, it's no different than, than the 1992 riots when Rodney King was beat and that situation didn't work out in the favor of prosecution. So any riot throughout history has all really been, we can pinpoint it back to police brutality and the things that are people are getting pushed over and people are sick of getting knocked down by the government, by the establishment. So we're going to continue to have this conversation about how do we dismantle police brutality, the, the system, oppression, until we actually rebuild it from the ground level. And how do we rebuild it? We have sometimes have to burn it from the ground. But you're saying that it's not the black community in Minneapolis who's doing this. No, it's not. So and who, I, who is I, it? I mean, you live there. You're, you're there. You're sitting there <laughs> yeah. right down. Who, who, who's running around lighting the McDonald's on fire in the post office and stuff? So I can share this, this link to you um, in, in the comments, but we have actually pinpointed a lot of them have been Caucasian cats, saying it and blaming it on black folks. And so St. Paul has been, we, we, they've four people have been arrested and they've all been Caucasian males and we have it all on camera. I've been sharing this on my Facebook. Like I can really walk through my Facebook of all the things that's happening. Like when people say, um, so we have the third precinct, which is a police department. They burned down the police department in Minneapolis. And the ones that who enacted that were all college kids, young kids between 15 to 24. So it's a, it's a younger generation that's really pissed. I have been out there when people were rioting, throwing stuff, breaking windows. And I have this on Facebook Live, too, on my page. I'll reshare it. And it's young people. People are really pissed. But it's not just black folks, white folks. It's everyone. And they're really, they're, it's, it's younger, it's really younger kids. But are you telling me it's more white kids than black kids doing this violence and doing this uh, rioting and br- smashing of businesses? The ones that have burned down places such that have a significance have been arrested that are really on record have been Caucasian kids. Um, there has been one African-American kid in St. Cloud. I know that for sure um, that they pinpointed him. If they're ever going to put color, there was one. But the majority of them have been Caucasian young kids, uh, white males. So let me ask you this question. If there was a peaceful riot 
in a middle-class white neighborhood in pick your part of the country. Peaceful white people protesting something. And a group of quote-unquote Islamic terrorists showed up and started burning down the McDonald's and the post office and, and local businesses and so forth. Um, what do you think the reaction in the United States would be to a large group of, quote, Islamic terrorists infiltrating a peaceful demonstration and turning it into a riot and looting and, and so forth? How do you think things would be different? I say that the, the outcome would be the same outcome of what the U.S. did to Iraq from 9-11. And when people who are just innocent Muslim folks, people will get a target, become targeted. It becomes a race riot. It becomes the, what we're going through right now with uh, blue lives, <laughs> police, law, you know, an occupation versus a life. That same narrative would be pushed, but a lot more hatred, a lot more bigotry, a manhunt for people who look different. There are Muslims. It, it's, it's a witch hunt because white anger is real anger. And when it's white anger, things get changed. When it's other people's anger, it gets washed under the rug and we're still that's why we're still having this conversation that we're behind riots and uh, social justice, humanity, because people are not being valued as humans by the, those who created the systems that says, hey, we're all treated equal. But it would be a witch hunt like motherfuckers would be killed. And it's a sad because we throughout history. Right, and it's not it's not to use your phrase. It's not a witch hunt to find the white people burning down these black neighborhoods. And it's nowhere. I mean, look, I've read this elsewhere. It's not the first time I'm hearing this, of course, but but it is not front and center in the news the way it would be if, uh, quote unquote, Islamic terrorists were attacking peaceful white um, protesters. So, look, I, here's my here's the question. Another I've got so many for you. today. Bring them, bring them. I got so many. But this is the one I've been asking my black friends pretty much since this happened. So I want to ask you, what can I do? What can we do? What can I, as a guy like I am, what can I do? You're doing what you're doing right now. You're given a platform and you're giving people a chance to have their, their perspective and their stories being told. You're changing that paradigm. You're, you're changing my perspective of older white men. So like to be very <laughs> blunt in, in that sense. Um, Who are you calling you're, you're old? <laughs> <laughs> now I'll say that word for you, but literally like you're, 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 you're living testimony. So, but you're having the conversation. You're, you're, you're pushing people's button. You're posting things and that's on a socialness because you're giving something you're giving up. You're, you're, you're very, you're very blessed. You don't have to do what you're doing, Chris. You, you can sit back and just, um, age gracefully, <laughs> but you're choosing to end that. And that's the, and that's the big important part. Many people are, are so stuck on what can I do? What can I do? And not realizing they're doing something by wanting to do something. Now, what's the first step is having a conversation, which you've already done. You've asking a tough question. Hey, I know I'm white. I may have some privileges, but like, how the hell do I do something for a younger generation? I got a couple more years left. Like, you're, you're coming to people and you're asking and, you know, you're, you're building, you're willing to learn. So being willing to learn uh, whiteness reverse and, and what racism and how everyone, you know, at times who are European of descent have benefited from that foundation because America is nothing without the backs of slaves who built it, the backs of the Native Americans who were killed for this. And the list goes on and on and on. So 
Uh, what you're doing right now, you're having a conversation. Another thing is in your localness, what is happening in your own community that people are sick and tired of being sick and tired of? Every many, many communities have people of color, <laughs> minorities that are struggling. Why are they struggling? What system is not helping them out? And we can break down, you know, the, the minimum wage. We can break down the register, you know, redlining. We can break down why communities are why they are all by design. So how do we re redesign it? Because when we want to re redesign these communities, it's not for them anymore. It's called gentrification. We like it. We devalued your community. You guys killed you guys. You know, you got you devalued that entire neighborhood. We're going to buy it back, kick you out, and you're going to push it into, we're going to push this group of people into another community that is less fortunate. It's a never-ending cycle. I live in a community where, again, I live in a, I live in the hood, to be very frank. <laughs> I see, I hear gunshots literally every night, and it's just night for me. I, it is what it is. I have, I have to protect my, my renters. My, you know, I've had to maneuver and shift differently. But that's just how the world is. And here's a cool perspective my business partner was telling me because someone a couple blocks away had got their phone stolen. And I was like, oh, I just got a notification. Now I have to, when I walk on my block, I have to bring a weapon. He said, well, someone on the, up, up the block maybe have got their phone stolen. But if you go up into the white neighborhoods, you have someone doing uh, insurance fraud. So the hustle is different in different areas. So he made me really understand that, you know, this may be this, but there's a crime over here that's happening just as large to as many more people. So it may be a one a random incident, but crime is happening elsewhere. So if you look at it in that sense that, you know, don't worry about the community that you're living in, how it pinpointed all the problems, because every community has a problem. There's sometimes they're not seen because they're so discreet. You know, why is there such thing called white collar? What is a white collar crime? A white collar crime is a crime that white folks do and they get a slap on the wrist for. Like, <laughs> that's literally what a white collar crime What is a black crime? You can do anything for being black and you're, you're completely arrested, you're annihilated, you're, you have a felony and you're, you're deemed from society. So, but that's not the case. And, if, and I say all that because there's so many rich people that who are Caucasian that can buy their way out of freedom, that can buy their freedom. You know, I'm watching the documentary on Jeffrey Epstein. You know, he bought himself freedom for many years until money, his, no matter how much money, he offered $500 million for his freedom, and that would not do it for him. So the times are changing where privilege and power um, is losing losing their structure. Well, that was a hell of an answer. Um, <laughs> so you're doing, you're doing your job. You're doing your job, Chris. So in a, in a broad sense, you're doing your job. And I think a lot of us, I, that's very kind of you to say, I, I think a lot of us say, okay, um, and now's the time to do more. You know, one of the things you and I, of course, met through One Life. And I got to tell you, Tim Rode is maybe the least racist human being I've ever met. Correct. And the work that he and the One Life team have done, and now we have, uh, you know, Carolyn Colleen now is taking over as CEO, and she's an, un oh my God, what a woman. Uh, but, uh, you know, as a, it's interesting, right? You know, here's, here's Timmy. This quote unquote, his words, hick from the sticks, white as all fucking white can be, uh, like me, so white you're almost green, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, from a small mountain town, and for the better part of a decade, with one life, he's been focused on underserved communities, special programs for people of color, on, on self-reliance and entrepreneurship and so forth, and it's deeply, deeply inspiring to me, and I, I've supported one life from the very beginning in all kinds of ways. And, uh, you know, uh, at the risk of sounding immodest, I, I recently wrote them a pretty meaningful check to help continue to fund 
the programs in the inner city around entrepreneurship. And, and this is leading me to a question, which is one of the things that I'm not hearing enough about is entrepreneurship in the black community. And we recently had Naveen Chada on, who's Indian. He's the leader of a venture fund out here in Silicon Valley called Mayfield. He's an incredibly successful guy. And the Indian community in Silicon Valley over the 25 years or so that I've been here has done an incredible job of, of becoming uh, a huge contributing part of the startup ecosystem. We have many Indian billionaires now, entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and so forth. And he and I were talking about what needs to happen for a different group like that to have an opportunity. And so this long story longer, what I'm getting to is I'm landing on this place called, hey, um, Black Entrepreneurs Matter. And so what do we need to do to engender more denariuses, more people of color to have an opportunity to stand up for themselves and find a way to be entrepreneurs like me, many of whom, you know, for some entrepreneurship is a way up in the world, and that's great. But for me, and I think for you, entrepreneurship was a way out. And so I can't understand why we're not hearing more about black entrepreneurs. And I'm dying to know what you think we need to do to engender a, a context, a community for opportunities for black entrepreneurs like yourself. This is a conversation that black entrepreneurs and black folks are really having. It's not broad, it's not spoke enough or broad enough where we're seeing enough enacting change because I've been an entrepreneur since I was 15 years old. I was selling iPhones and iPhones and electronics on, on Craigslist while I was working as working at Dairy Queen. Um, so trapping cell phones on the side while I'm trapping dilly bars in the daytime. <laughs> and so my hustle, I, why did I have to become an entrepreneur? Why did I have to come up with this money? Because I had to help around the house. So everyone has a story to why they become an entrepreneur. And sometimes the route of entrepreneurship is different. Mine was legal. I always wanted to do something that was legal. I saw the movie called The Social Network, the Facebook movie. And before that movie was done, I created two websites. And that was my big drive to want to go to college, want to create something that was residual, that was passive. Well, not everyone has that same introduction to what entrepreneurship is. Entrepreneurship is maybe selling something that's illegal. And but that is still entrepreneurship because it, now in other states, like the state you live in, it's a business. It's a multi-billion dollar business. So when we talk about communities of color and we talk about the ways of that we are able to survive, it's trans, we have the, I call them transferable skills because you are a customer. So you have customer service as a, as a, as a dealer. You, you, you have inventory, you have headcount, you have, there, there, you, you're, it's literally eliminate stand. It just happens to be <laughs> whatever you're choosing to sell. So if we're able to educate our own community in which we're doing, uh, it's called transferable skills. And it starts with the youth. So one thing I do and alongside my, a lot of the people that I, I, I work alongside, we go into the schools. I speak at a lot of the elementaries, the high schools, and teaching entrepreneurship, branding 101. I, I mentor some kids. One of my mentees, his name is Jaquan Falconer. He has a hot dog stand that went viral in North Minneapolis. Um, he was he had a chance to go on Steve Harvey's show. Damon Jones from Shark Tank gave him ten thousand dollars and a bunch of entrepreneurial programs. We did I, I did a kick fund uh, a GoFundMe raised a couple thousand dollars for him for his for his business and but it starts at that age. Kids are very very entrepreneurial. 
if I started my first thing as an entrepreneur at 15 years old, and I'm seeing other kids who want to start something at 10 and so and so and so and so, let's have that conversation with them because kids are very creative now. They're growing up with iPads. They're growing up with technology. And for the businesses that I run right now, um, I run a telecommunications brokerage called Optimum Outreach. And if you go to our website, OptimumOutreach.com, you'll see our logo. Our logo is created by my business partner's daughter, just 12 years old. She, she gave us an invoice and everything. She, and, and it was so unique and, and the logo was pretty unique. And, but it all started with, Hey, can you help us out? His daughter's pretty, she's again, 12 years old because she's a graphic designer. So we're, we're not only, you know, being a living testimony, but helping other people, we're also hiring people to help us out that are that talented for whatever age they're looking for. So because the conversation is just sitting someone down who's interactive and, one of the things I've learned that a lot of the kids that I've talked to, they 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 know about drop shipping. They know about Shopify. They have they know about e-commerce sites. And I'm like, what you're a ninth grader. I didn't know about this in high school. <laughs> I was still thinking about girls and wrestling and you know being like, being an athlete. So because I'm still kids- <laughs> thinking about girls and, and fights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and the reason why is because kids are introduced to Instagram stars, YouTube stars, they see a different outlet. And I, I know this because as a person who's now building an online store, you know, having selling books and stuff like that, the same things that, you know, I have aspired to want to become, I am now am. And then kids are now seeing that, you know, Hey, how do I do this? And like, Oh, this is just, you have to get a Shopify. You have to do this. And, but I had to learn, you have to fail your way forward. You pick up some workshops, go to some master classes, some masterminds, but it's a work in progress. But when we're talking about uh, the black community and all the opportunities to help them build entrepreneurship. We have to know what those opportunities are. We don't know what a chambers of commerce is. We don't know what a business peer network is. We didn't, we were, well, it's not our language, but we know what a powwow is. We know what a meetup group is. So it's just changing the, the verbiage, the lingo, but also people have to see someone that looks like them, speak to them, how they want to be spoke to. So I may be in a suit. And when I talk to, when I talk to certain groups, but you know, I have to code switch. Co-switching is when I speak all proper, woo, 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 but I'm really laid back. I'm a 420 friendly brother. And, you know, <laughs> you, throw, you throw some cognac in my hand. I might just talk a little bit funnier. I'm from the South. So, like, we have to talk authentic when it's talked to our people, because when black folks see a, a high a high class black man or anyone that looks successful, they may think them as a Uncle Tom, Snooty. Um, and, and in the black community, we have a really big problem with crabs in the barrel mentality. Did, what did you what did you call it? Crabs in the barrel mentality. Yeah. OK, so what's that? There's a there's a thing in, in, the, in the community where someone makes it. They don't have the other person up and they walk around as if they're all that like other people didn't help them get there. And anyone that's ever been successful, anyone that strives to be successful, they know they did not do it alone. You, this is not how it works. To, to even for you even to pick up your phone to make a business call, you needed at least a phone carrier. <laughs> you needed someone to make the to help you make the call. You needed a cell phone. You needed you needed Steve Jobs to come up with the iPhone. Like you needed something. So even breaking it down to that that's a, that singleer. Like every book that I've written, all of my acknowledgments have I've always dedicated the people who inspired me to write that or finish that project. They're in that acknowledgments. Um, in my first book, I, my acknowledgements are all my high school friends, people who doubted me, people who liked me, people who, you know, whatever. I put them in there. In my second book, my, my mom, my mentors that, you know, that helped me understand that, hey, Daenerys, your perspective of the world is great, but you have to get out of your, your own bubble and get around some people who, who, who can rough your feathers. 
But I didn't know that because sometimes our potential are, is, is way bigger than from another person's perspective than our own. So when you talk about the, the black community of people having hope for us, we don't, sometimes we don't have hope around us. Sometimes all we see is tragedy, poverty, drugs, alcohol, rape, prostitution. And I live in a very high risk area that is deemed a hood, but it's my community that I love dearly. Everyone looks like me and they may have, they, the struggle may be different, but I am no different because I've struggled. I've been homeless. I survived the summer of 2013 with a dollar 78 cents. I've been down and out, not only financially, but mentally, but it's all a swift, a, sh- a shift in our paradigm of us having hope and someone believing in us. Someone believing in me of me having a better life than I previously had is what kept me driving. And once I kept having that foot, that, that, that momentum from people who don't even look like me, people who I've never met, like we've even, we've never met Christopher in, in, in person, but we're cool. We vibe. And when we come together, we're going to have some good times. Like it's just common sense because frequencies and energy attracts like-minded energy. I'm a very spiritual person. So I've been very intent with the energy that I've had to attract to myself because I realized when I was attracting the unsuccessful outlook, um, the unsuccessful habits, I was doing unsuccessful things. I was living paycheck to paycheck, but I was around people who were living paycheck to paycheck. You can't be a aspire a speaker, author when you're still hanging out with the same guys who you're smoking weed with when you were in high school. It's not how it works because they may be still figuring it out where, you know, in, internally, I know who I am. I'm not out here looking to be validated by the world at large. I, I'm, living, I'm living as bold and unapologetically fresh as hell as I can until the day that I die. So as I've had to find that self-love and stop looking for the validation from the outside, the community who is, who is struggling, we're always looking for hope. But we don't see hope around us until we see someone uh, that looks like us, that is around us, that's pushing us in that direction. And the people who have pushed me in, in the direction have all been white men. Like my wrestling coach, that was the first father figure, you know, growing up in high school. My mentor, Mary Dingman, um, she was good friends. She's good friends with Bob Proctor and his wife. So I, these are people that like they really took me under my wing. And like, so when I talk about like guidance, it, I didn't see color. I saw someone who saw me for who I wanted to become and make sure that I didn't trip up along that route. So when we talk about communities, all communities of color, all communities struggle. <laughs> Poverty doesn't, doesn't discriminate. I've seen broke people who are white, broke people who have been Indian. The list goes on and on. But if we really talk about, talk about poverty and we're in the richest country in the world, why is poverty even a system? Because, it, it, there's been, because people benefit off the struggles of others. With the company, that, so I, when I bought my house here in this in this neighborhood, my car insurance was a lot cheaper when I was in the white neighborhood. Mm. My car insurance went up $1,700 more because I changed my address to a high-risk area. And I said, no, that's not the case. This is not what's going to happen. And I had to completely switch things up and shop around for an affordable. But I, even when you talk about insurance companies, you talk about systems, everything is, is unaffordable in the hood. They jack the prices up and keep people below and that's how the poverty can stays stays a system and i i've read some things over the last handful of weeks about mortgages in black communities and i don't have my, uh, the, uh, my fingertips but the numbers are disgusting and so it's all of that shit right yep but you you somehow made it work in spite of that i, I want to go back to you said something a while ago denarius about that you you became an entrepreneur because you had to, to support your family. Is that what you said? Yep. So, so tell me a little bit about that time and, and 
the circumstances and then the actions that you took? Sure. I'll, tell, I'll just talk about my story. So I'm, I'm originally from Memphis, Tennessee. I grew up um, half there. And then my, my sister got pregnant at a very early age. My mom missed, uh, decided to ship her to Minnesota to go stay with my uncle. Um, obviously, she missed her. And she said, we're going to move to Minnesota. So we moved to Minnesota in 1998. Like I said earlier, I, I had never saw a white person. In my life, they're all been on Ripley's, believe it or not. They're all on TV. How, how old were you when you saw your first white person? <laughs> <laughs> like five years old, six years old, literally. And I remember it, 1998. So and so I, I came to Minnesota and I was completely whitewashed, like white shock. There's white people. And then I saw snow, I never saw snow. So I came to Minnesota very, you know, not understanding the, the environment. I went to high school in Burnsville, graduated high school there. And I, after for three colleges, I went to three colleges in three years. I was part of a national champion team in wrestling and cross country. After suffering my ninth concussion, I said, I'm done wrestling. I'm done trying to be this macho guy. There has to be something else out there. After you came to Minnesota uh, and you're in the school system, you were using your athletic prowess, both as a wrestler and as you said, tr- track or cross country? Cross country. Cross country. So you were a good athlete. You were applying yourself in that regard and you converted that into an academic scholarship or, 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 or how did that work? Correct. So, so I, I graduated high school. Um, I was an athlete. I was ranked in state, ranked 10th state at 135, 8th state at 130. One of those macho guys. Um, and, but I didn't have the success I wanted my senior year. And so I was like, all right, let's go to college. Let's try to make it work. So I got a, uh, I got a scholarship for wrestling to go out to, to go to Iowa Central Community College. I, I did one year of community college. I graduated high school at a 1.4. So I, I wasn't the brightest kid, but I went to college and I had a 3.6. My change of my attitude was because I wanted to more out there. I just, you know, Iowa's a cool state. You know, they provide corn to the world. But if you live in Iowa and if you live in a small town and you're coming from a city, it, it not, and if you're black and you're in a, and you're, and all you see is everyone with Confederate flags, it was a little bit different. <laughs> so I, um, I did, I went there for athletic. I went there for college for sports. I lasted one year. And then I went to college out in Sierra Nevada college in Lake Tahoe. So another, if you know Lake Tahoe, mm-hmm. you, I know it well, I used to live in Truckee for years. See, I lived in an incline village. So I know Truckee. I love incline village. I, I always used to, I always thought, um, even though it's a it's a not a very popular mountain and some people say it's not that impressive, I always had a great time skiing Diamond Peak, too. I always had a great time there. Thank you. I don't care what anyone says. The happiest time in my life was when I was 19 years old going to that school. I met the most coolest kids. Um, I got to, I got to go out to um, I spent, you know, Fourth um, of July with one of my friends, family over in Modesto, California. I had a great time in Cali. And that's where I that's in Truckee. Like, remember, my, my retirement is um south south tahoe so I'm, i want to be on the border because it has to be now it's legal but so it, it wasn't legal at the time in nevada so now it's legal in both states so <laughs> it doesn't matter anymore i take that kind of coming back but so i went out there in uh, nevada i went out there because it was a business school and i had this big idea i really wanted to create basically what facebook marketplace is i did a lot of craigslist deals so my story is I once traded an iPhone 5 for a moped and I drove that moped from Minnesota to Iowa to, to visit my girlfriend. So when someone says they're dedicated, I, I literally traded the phone off my, my, cause I didn't have a car license permit. She ended up getting a DWI. How, how many miles <laughs> is that, uh, Denarius? It was eight hours. On a moped? On a moped. I only go 40 miles per hour. I can, I'll see you this photo. I swear to God. I, I got pulled <laughs> over going too slow. I got pulled over in Polk County, Iowa. At 3 a.m. in the morning, I saw a cop and I was like, oh, shit, slow down. 
not thinking I'm not even going fast enough. He pulls me over. He says, you're going 38, obviously. He gives me a ticket. I get a $195 ticket. Tells me to get off the interstate. It takes me eight hours to get to her house through the back roads. And then took me 10 hours through the back away roads to get back to Minnesota. <laughs> so like as an entrepreneur, I'm out here. I didn't have a mobile. and I, I had to get a job. I didn't have a car. But I, I said, hey, well, how can I get a car? How can I get something that's mobile on the road that you don't need a license for? A moped. So I, I was like, I don't have any money, but I have an iPhone that's worth the amount of a moped. I traded my iPhone for that moped, went to Walmart, got a $10 flip phone, and now I had a way to get to work <laughs> and to my girlfriend. So Two things we need as a young man. We need some cash and we need we need somebody to cuddle. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, um, so, so I was always driven in this entrepreneurship. So when I went out to Nevada, I wanted to come up with this app. It didn't work out. And I met a guy out there and he said, my family had at that side. At my family at that time decided to move back to Memphis, Tennessee. Um, I was like, my mom's like, oh, no one's shoveling the driveway. You know, I'm sick of spinning out. It's too much snow. It's like okay. So, but I said I'm not going to go to the south. It's not for me. So when I met a friend out there in Nevada, he said, hey, you can just come back to Minnesota and stay with me. I said, cool. Well, when I came back to Minnesota, he just thought I wanted to party because I met him at a, he, he he invited me at a night of party. So basically, I couldn't stay. I got. I was basically. He's like, "No, you can't stay here." So I was basically left homeless. I sent out a tweet on Twitter, and an old family friend, a Caucasian family friend of mine, um, he knew me through the wrestling community. He said, "Daenerys, my family loves you. Just go to their house. They have the basement for you, and just you know, find a way there." So I sent out another tweet. Some more friends say, "Hey, I'm in Minnesota. Who wants to hang out?" My friends picked me up. They dropped me off there, and that was basically the the reshifting of my of my of my drive. I got accepted to every school in Minnesota, but I didn't have a car license or permit to get around. So I had a friend who was going to St. Cloud State on a Friday. I reached out to her on Wednesday and I just jumped. I said, hey, you might have a jump in your car. I got a car. I got a ride. I got accepted. And so that's how I went to St. Cloud State. And then when I went to St. Cloud State, that's where I started my entrepreneurship. My big goal was to create something. And so I finally got some money. And I don't recommend this to anyone. Um, but I took my student, my student refund check and I hired a company overseas to create my app for, for an iPhone. <laughs> I didn't buy my college books that year. I decided to bank on myself and I spent that entire... So, uh, <laughs> Denarius, are you saying you were a little nefarious with what you did with your funds? <laughs> I did a white collar crime as a brother. And, <laughs> and I hired a company overseas and they created an iPhone app for me. And it's called Zombie Doodle. It was around the Walking Dead and the zombie versus plants. I wanted to ride that that wave, and I created an app, and it had some cool international downloads. But that's what really pushed me toward like want something more as an entrepreneur. And then in the summer of 2013, I put all my eggs in that basket. And I'm a 19 year old kid. I don't know a damn thing about marketing. I'm I'm a YouTube taught self marketer, and obviously I had some I had some success, but I was broke. And I, in the summer of 2013, I was, I was left with only a dollar, a dollar and 78 cents. And I had to work a l- bunch of odd jobs uh, for people, my friends. I have good friends to this day that I, I, I love because they fed me for three months straight. They took me to Taco Bell. Trust me, Taco Bell is not something you want to eat every day. Uh, we had our own bathrooms because Taco Bell goes right through you. <laughs> um, and, but it, 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 that was my, that was my time. I was broke. I remember one day someone, took a, um, a quarter from my room because I, I, I had no money and I remember what, but I had such a, a meltdown and I was so pissed about to really destroy someone's world because I had a, a quarter missing. And that's, that's, that's the stage that I was in at 19 years old. 
I, I had no hope. I was broke. I, I was about to sign up to join the military and all these different, in a diff- I just didn't have that. I didn't know what else to do. And I eventually asked for help. I humbly asked for help for my friends. And I became a debt collector. I got a job as a debt collector. So imagine not being able, and I had to get out of school because I couldn't go back to school. I couldn't, I, I left school one day. I said, when I went out to school in Nevada, I couldn't afford it. So I, I lasted a semester. The school was $44,000 a year. I only lasted a semester. And then I didn't have enough scholarships to, to, for the remaining 7000 So, all right, well, I have to go to another college, and which I did, which, 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 which was St. Cloud State. And when I went there, I had an epiphany. I, feel, I was like, I'm, 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 I'm technically a junior because this is my third year, but I'm still doing my sophomore classes. I feel like I'm in the same spot three years later. And that, 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 that didn't sit well with me. Because I'm a, I'm a mover and shaker. And I was going through this stage like, I can't go down. I, I don't see myself doing something for 40 years and, and retiring at an age that I can't even change my own underwear. Like, I kept hearing that. And it, it felt, it just started to irk me. And that summer, I got a job as a debt collector. And then I started to understand debt. I started to ha- have real authentic conversations. And my name was Matt Peterson, so I had an alias. So I would be like, so, um, hi, this, hi, this is Matt Peterson. Give me a call from the office of J.C. Christensen and Associates. And I would just walk my way through talking with people and navigating them through how to tackle debt, how to address something they put off. How to, and I heard real stories. And the thing is, I was talking to people who had degrees that I had aspired to want to go but they had all the debt that I did not want to go along with that. And I had conversations with women who had masters, their doctors, their husband just left them. They're on the second child and they're crying to me. And I'm just a 19 year old kid who hit the one before work. So he can, <laughs> he can be relaxed. And I, it really hit my core. Cause I'm, I'm, I started to learn that I'm an empath. So I started to take on the stories of all the people I was having a conversation with. And that really left me with no choice to be an entrepreneur. And I picked up a book and I started to learn the universe. I started to get very spiritual. And the book said, do what professionals do, go where professionals go and wear what they wear. And the book is called Branding Yourself by Kyle Lacey and Eric Deckers. And this book taught me how to reshift the brand that I wanted to aspire to have. I was telling my story, the story I'm telling you to my friends, and they were crying. And they said, Daenerys, you need to tell the story. And when I, they said, you need to become a motivational speaker. And I was like, well, how do you do that? Well, you have to find a way to be authentic enough to tell your story in front of people without feeling all the feelings that you would feel by being vulnerable. So I spent years of just networking. I spent that time that summer networking. And I joined the, and the book said, join the Chambers of Commerce. So I joined, I joined the Chambers of Commerce at 19 years old in St. Cloud State. And that's where I met a mentor. And it was all divine. And I had just saw The Secret. A friend would told me, hey, Daenerys, you should, you should watch The Secret. And for, I was broke as hell. I had nothing else to do. <laughs> I said, give me your, give me your, give me your Netflix passcode. <laughs> and for literally, I swear to God, 30 days straight. And I'm going to be very blunt. I smoked weed for 30 days straight and I watched The Secret every single day. And I was high as hell and I used my imagination. And in that period, I was, I was learning about the attraction and how to attract people. And I had this girl that I was dating. And I told this story because one day we were going on a date and we left the house and we went outside to go to the car and she thought I had a car. I was like, girl, you know, I'm broke. I ain't got no car. Come on. I'm broke. Ass. <laughs> you know, I'm broke, girl. What you mean? Just being funny with it. So we go back inside, we grab her keys and we come back out and we get into her car and she's in a 2013 Prius 
you know, blonde little Caucasian girl. And she looks over to me and she's like, oh, so you're just a broke ass nigga. Kid you not. <laughs> this is what she said to me. And that hit me as a core. But I was so I was I was such in a time of that a pain in that time, trying to hide my reality with drugs, alcohol, just trying to be cool and whatnot. And inside there was a side of me that said, Well, am I not? But there was the other side I was like, I should be pissed at this. So as we continued to go about our date, <laughs> our smoking date, as I went her around and introduced it to my friends, those words as I got higher that day, and the words hit me. And I went to my room and I wrote down her quote on my wall. And I looked at her quote for three months, for six months straight. In three months, I got my, my, I got my permit. Um, in four months, I got my license. And within six months, I had bought my first car. But I used those words in that pain that I felt at that time to really push myself to manifest something that I felt I couldn't have. I didn't know how to get. I didn't have credit. I didn't have money. I didn't know how that stuff worked. But I put myself in a position and it took me time to do something in that, in that light to, to basically attract that experience of having independency because I, I I was at a time in my life where I call it the passenger seat in life. You have to have people take care of you so you can be, so you can maneuver. You have to ask people for rides. You have to ask something. And sometimes when you ask, you, you, you know, and you, and you don't have money to pay for one, you know, you don't have gas money. You don't, all you have is like, I need help. You want people. And I was at that time. I just needed people to help me out of the kindness of you knowing me and you know, I'm going to get you when I get right. And so I had people do that for me. So I, I was, I, I had my roommates. I had to get a job as a debt collector because my roommates all worked that job. And that's the only job I would have a ride to. So I, there was, when you talk about survival, we have to survive in a way that our environment allows it to. I remember being taking a bus um, and not having a jacket, not having any hat to, in Minnesota, it gets really cold. It gets negative 15, 15, negative 20. So I have stories of me getting frostbite standing in front of a bus stop. I, I have a longboard that I longboard, like I, I spoke about earlier, that that longboard was my first, my very first vehicle. I, when I had to get a tooth pull, no one could give me a ride. I didn't have, know the bus schedules. I had to longboard to get my tooth pulled with this one right here <laughs> on a longboard, drugged up completely. So when you talk about stories of like Skateboarding's pain, more like, fun when you're stoned, isn't it? <laughs> it is, but not when you're on pain pills and you're bleeding out of your mouth <laughs> and you can't smoke. Because you're gonna have it sounds terrible, <laughs> terrible, correct. But I met that mentor the, the, at that at, at that James of Commerce, and, and she said, and she asked me this question. She said, Daenerys, if money was never an option, what would you do with your life? And I said, this, that, woo, 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 woo. And she said, well, why is why are you not doing it? Then I came up with every excuse of why I didn't have the life I had aspired or did I just imagined, rather than t- say or imagine how I could come up with that life. And that was, that's where it clicked for me. It was my, how I focused on my thinking of even my own ability. And she reframed it. You can have anything you imagine to. And I started to realize that because I started to really understand that everything around us is, was once upon a time, someone's idea. The, the, the shirt that we're wearing, the car that we drive, the seat that we're sitting in, it was someone's idea that they put on paper and they had put it into material. They took action. So when I started to take action, I started to look at my own examples of how was I able to manifest the, the things that for me to overcome the, and really understand what opportunity was, understanding what like everything, you know, synchronicity, you know, things happen for a reason. And understanding the reason why it's happening is because of this energy that I 
am trying are, are hoping to give off. And I really didn't understand even the tragedies that were happening in my life because of my own inner doubts, my own insecurities. So when I talk to people about building success, you must build yourself. You can't tell people to overcome a crossroad if you're still going through that crossroad. And all the crossroads and tragedies that you know I've been blessed to overcome, I'm sure I'll have more. But having an approach to maneuver through <laughs> Remind it. Remind <laughs> me how old you are again, Denarius? <laughs> I'm 20. I just turned 27. <laughs> 27. Yeah. As tw- a 52 year old dude, I could tell you there's going to be some fire. There's more fire you're going to walk through, brother. <laughs> and, and I, and I, and I, and I, I know that because I've, I, I respect the opinions from those who experience things more than me. I, I've had to. Because I've sat at tables with millionaires. I had the chance to be around uh, Jeff Hoffman uh, from One Life Fuller Live. I've been around a multi-billionaire. I've been around some Isn't that who got guy some amazing? Stuff. Isn't Jeff Hoffman? A, if, 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 if there has to be a billionaire in the world, aren't you glad it's Jeff Hoffman? Correct. It, humility, uh, just the most, just, just the most, just you, just most laid back person in the world. Like you, yeah. and has the most success out there as well. So when I think about success and my story, the things I've overcome, and had to continue to overcome, it starts with me understanding my own inner self. Like I, 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 and I only say that because I want every, all many people out there in the world where we, we strive for an external validation to what success is. But I like, I like to say success is understanding and controlling your emotions and knowing who you are as you're scaling your own life. Yeah. And I'm curious, uh, you've achieved a tremendous, uh, uh, set of financial results for yourself today. Yes. It's been blessed. Um, um, I, it's been fun. Um, been very humbling. And um, but you're financially actually, very well off now. Yes. Yes, and on the road for more. So I'm still playing. <laughs> on the road. I don't want to put any energy. You mean you're not retiring yet? <laughs> I'm not retiring. But um, I I would say I like retirement. So I do have a job. I work as a PCA. I work for, with vulnerable adults. I've been doing this for three years. What, what's a PCA, Denarius? Um, a personal care attendant for vulnerable adults. So I work with um, individuals who, who are who have mental disabilities that want independent living. They want to live on their own, but they need a little help. They may need help with laundry, clothes, um, you know, doing cooking food. So I'm that person that stays with them overnight. I get paid to hang out with basically my friend. He plays video games all night. He talks. We talk about hey, girl, stuff like that. Like I really get paid to hang out with someone to help them understand their emotions because I have to be a person that's been that's doing that you know in my own life. So it's been a very humbling job. But you have that job as well as other income streams. Yes, correct. Real estate. I run a telecommunication brokerage, a marketing firm. I have the books, um, advertisement, you know, speaking. sponsorship stuff, speaking. Correct. So it's not the only thing, but um, I, I always pinpoint this. I say this because even though I have a job or I'm an employer, employee, I'm also an employer. So I, I say that to anyone that wants to be that has an idea as a job and that has a job. You can have a job and also have a, have a side hustle because. That's how entrepreneurs, they turn their side hustle into their full-time hustle. Yes. Because everyone asked me, how did I become an entrepreneur? Well, I worked, the, I worked the job and I didn't want to work anymore. And I found the way for me to do something I enjoy doing. Because everyone that has, you know, their story of being an entrepreneur, they did something they didn't want to do or they didn't want to go down the route of a life they didn't want to live. Yes. So they created their own journey. Yes. That's my story. And I think you're absolutely right. That's a story of some meaningful percentage of entrepreneurs. That's why I think for many of us, entrepreneurship is a way out. Correct. Now, Daenerys, I, I do want to go back and uh, we had touched on a little bit earlier the, the talk you yes. had with your mom when you were when you were a younger guy about sort of navigating 
the world. Can you, you know, I had, my mother had many talks with me, <laughs> but it, she didn't have that one. Can you tell me about that one? Yeah. So the talk that many um, minority family members have to their kids is how to maneuver in a very all white world. I learned how, how I learned the ends of out by learning about the Emmett Till story. Um, African American man was was wrongly accused of whistling at a white woman. Um, a lynch of white men came and beat him, hung him, and just disfigured his body. So those are images that I grew up, are stories I grew up hearing. I grew up hearing family members who are African American, my family members, they were dating white women that their house got shot up because they were dating a white girl. So. I hear family members getting killed. I've had family members getting killed because they were dating a white woman in the South. I'm from, I'm from Memphis. I'm from, from where a lot of this stuff happens. And so I grew up in fear of white people. That's why I didn't know people were real. They were all just stories because, you know, you're, you're young, you have fairy stereos and stuff like that. And so the story, my mom, my mom's, you know, maneuvered me and said, don't date white girls. That was the one thing my mom was very stressful to do. Don't date white girls. And I never understood that um, until I started to grow up. You hear the athletes having the, the rape allegation conversation. You hear the uh, the stories of um the Me Too movement. You hear all these different things. Some of them rightful, but me, some of them also wrong. There's many there's many stories of black white black men being accused by white women. So that was a conversation when my mom told me when I was eight years old, when I was very young, because I grew up in I started to grow up in the suburbs in, in Minnesota, and you start to be attracted to the only you see, and um. And, and so that was the conversation. And the other conversation is when dealing with cops. Always having your hands when you need to see them. Be, be polite. Yes, sir. Um, yes, ma'am. Just knowing to like, there's so much, even walking to school, like my mom, like the conversations of how to survive being black is tiring. Like how to, how to go to the grocery store. Um, not like nowadays, I don't wear hoodies to go into the grocery stores. I don't wear hoodies at all because of all the different conversations around Trayvon Martin and his hoodie situation. I wear crew necks. I even, so even when I'm going to just dr even dressing up, you know, even wearing a suit, I still will be viewed different. I still see the looks like, what do you do? The passive aggressive looks like, well, uh, okay. and I, and I Did say you steal all that suit, Denarius? I feel it. I, I feel it. They, you I've feel people look it. at you that way when you're, I mean, you are a very snappy dressed guy and, and you like to look like a professional and so forth. But you feel people look down at you for doing that? Yeah, um, I've seen Caucasian folks do that in certain areas of, in many Minnesota. Um, and I say that because they'll, they'll start a conversation. Oh, you're, you're well-dressed. You must be going to court. Like, what do, you, what do you mean? No, I'm somebody not going really, to court. Uh, look, I know it's going to make me sound stupid and naive, but somebody that you don't know literally walks up to you and says those things to you? Someone will say that to me. Another situation, I was at a grocery, I was at, um, at a gas station and I was behind the line behind a, an older Caucasian male. And I don't play basketball. I'm 5'8", five, 5'10", five, with some good shoes. Um, I have a cauliflower ear if I take that. But you're a, you're a, you're a, you're a tough wrestler. I wouldn't want you to grab hold of me, right? <laughs> the double leg takedown might hurt. Yeah. So I'm a wrestler. That's my, anyone that knows me that knows I cannot shoot a ball. I'll make jokes because I, I'll play the cool, like, you know, white man can't jump, black brother can play ball. But once you give me the ball, I'll, I'll look good. But, you know, I say all that. So, uh, to make humor to that, I do not play ball. So I'm in, I'm in line and Caucasian man looks behind. He gets startled because, I'm a black man behind him, or whatever the case may be. And he's like, "Oh, it, 
it's a nice day to play basketball, isn't it? I don't know. I, I don't play basketball. I, it's not a conversation. Those are called microaggressions where um, if, if I, and I, and, and, and I looked like Tiger Woods, I was dressed in my golf outfit, <laughs> literally. So as a guy wearing a golf outfit, looking like with the, with the visor and everything. Five, eight. And, <laughs> Five eight. I'm not playing basketball. I'm looking like I'm going for to, to go to hit a couple rounds. So I've had conversations like that, and that um, shit happens all the time. It happens all the time. Um, I have people that stop. They'll stop me um, because I'm well dressed and ask me what I do, or, or you know, just out of the blue. Out of the blue, I, I I've been the master of ceremony for like private events. You know these these you know these suit and tie places and. Passive aggressiveness, I, I very, I understand. Like, I'm very direct. I don't need it. Closed mouths don't get fed, and they don't get played in. So if you want some, come get some. <laughs> Can you say so, that again? <laughs> closed mouths don't get fed, and they don't get played in. So if you want some, come get some. And that goes both ways, in, in a physical way, in a sexual way too. That's that. That's, you, be, you're, you're definitely gonna use that because people love that. Um, but like, I say this because like I, 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 I read through bullshit. Like I, I. I was a campaign manager uh, for a guy who was running for mayor of Minneapolis a couple years ago, and he was a mild Republican. So as a black brother, and you see the shit I post on Facebook, I am not Republican. I don't care, you know, right versus left, but I'm common sense. I'll come to the table with you and have a conversation. So with me being at that table with a lot of folks that said, um, the conversation was says, we must protect our families and our kids against the, 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 multiple, the multiple shades of color of America. That's what the, the announcer said. And I'm the only black person there. The multiple shades of America. And, and I started to hear the, the verbiage, the lingo. And I started to really get trained on basically, you know, passive aggressiveness, microaggressions. Um, the reason why people ask you about your wealth or ask you what you do. All right. What do you do for work? Um, and it, it, because they, they're sizing you up. They're, they're trying to see if your if your value is more than their value, and that's their own subconscious yes. thing. And that's a human thing, right? That's not necessarily a race thing. I mean, one of the reasons I live where I live, Denarius, is because if if you and I go to a party here in Santa Cruz, if a friend invites invites me over, and maybe you're in town visiting or something like that, and we go to a party, we can go to a cocktail party at somebody's house in this town and be there for two or three hours, and not one person says to you, "What do you do?" I love that because that that sizing up bullshit. Is kind of, and look, sometimes it's appropriate to ask people those questions. I get it, but that that sort of dick measuring contest is a stupid way to value people. And I, and I, and I, and I say that because um, as I meditate, losing ego, edging God out, really trying to define that it's not about titles. Like I'm just a brother out here doing my thing. So when people say, "What do you do for work?" I do a lot of things. It's not, as, it, you know, I'm I I I, I now I just say I'm a janitor. I go and clean up shit. I clean up shit that, that people need to, need to be fixed. I'm a consultant. So, you know, I say I'm a janitor. I go into businesses. I clean things out. And like, I, I don't want to live in a title. I don't want to be confined as a one thing. I don't want to be just confined as an author because I'll have to come in. I always have to come in and speak on these, on these topics or what. Sometimes I just want to come in and just talk shit. <laughs> and like, like what, what you're doing right now, this is a show that I want to do because I want to be more blunt. I want to be more apologetic and, so I'm inspired by your actions. So in a couple of weeks, I'm going to invite you on our show as I, we're putting our podcast together. I can't together. wait. I can't wait. And we're going to talk a lot of shit because we're inspired by people that we we either idolize, look up to, or want to be like. And that doesn't have to come with color. Right. 
And I'll tell you this because you like my little riddles. Uh, I used to tell people I'm looking to be the next Tony Robinson, but with a better tan. The next Jim, the, the next Jim Rome with more style, and the next Les Brown with a better body. And no shot, no shot to Les Brown. I love him. He's, you know, obviously he's the first black brother that I looked up to in speaking. But that was like, like when people talk about how's your speaking style, I say I'm, I'm Tony Robinson, but I got a tan. You know, I'm I'm Jim Rome because I love Jim Rome's style of his how he broke things down. But you know, he he, you know, I throw a, a bow tie here, a pocket square here and there. And then Les Brown, because obviously Les Brown, if you look up, you can get up and his type of energy. So he, I always loved, he was, he was, he was legendary with the snappy sayings, wasn't he? Yeah. And that's where I started to define my own snappy sayings. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like Zig Ziglar had all those snappy sayings and shit. Yes. Yes. And, and it's rememberable. So when I do like my speeches with, with like my, my partners, when I'm doing a dual, a dual one, I would be like, so I know what you guys are thinking. What is this handsome and semi-handsome guy doing up here? We're here to <laughs> it, it gets people to laugh because we we want to feel comfortable for the things that we either w- want to learn or the things we don't we don't know. But if we're not interacting with people in a way that we we that we would want to be interacted, there's always going to be a disconnect. Yes. And right now we're in time we're to su- in this time we're such a disconnect between blue lives versus black color versus this, and it's not like. Like if all the trees were burned down today, we need to find a way to plant them so we can have auction to live. I don't care what what you know yes. area code you're from. We have to survive. Find a way to survive in this in this earth. And I don't think, for, at least for me, this isn't a race discussion. Is isn't any of that stuff? It's yeah. It's yeah. as simple and as biblical as good versus evil. Mm-hmm. Now, Daenerys, I know I don't have you forever, and clearly I could talk to you forever. Uh, <laughs> is there anything else that you would like to touch on before we wrap today? So from your perspective, you know, whatever age that you're in, what do you hope for the future in this conversation around social justice, criminal reform, and just the advancement of humanity? Because we're on the same page. It's not a white versus black. It's like, yo, we're humans. We got we share one earth. Y'all trying to inhabit it, Mars, but there ain't no oxygen up there yet. And so y'all figure out how to put oxygen on 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 Mars. We got to figure out how to keep our oxygen alive here. So, so criminal social justice, criminal reform, and what was the third one, Denarius? The advancement of the human race. Like, how do we really work alongside? Because the conversation that you're saying, like. The the indebtedness and the broad like the people that you've been able to interview, you have a way better, more perspective than me. So I'm here to learn. Uh, and from 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 all the people you asked this question about, you're going around to your black friends right now, asking them, "Hey, what can you do? Yeah. What you're doing right now? You're doing it. You're getting you're 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 bringing more people to have a voice. You're 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 giving you're sharing your platform, and you know, and, and I'm sure you're doing and you're doing things on a financial level." Because I know One Life Fully Live, and I know what they do, and they definitely make an impact because I've been a part of that testimony as well. Yeah, and I'll tell you, uh, you know, we've written more checks this year than we have in the last handful of years, and I've been writing checks ever since I first started making money. But So on the three issues, social justice, um, I think here's the bottom line. I think what we truly want is a real meritocracy. And what I mean by that, you know, meritocracy can be can be uh, tilted. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a real meritocracy where you and I are judged based on the substance of our character, how we conduct ourselves in the world and in a business and, and in some to some degree in a, from a life perspective, the results that we produce. That's, I think, 
what matters from from a social justice perspective, how we value each other. Am I a good person? Do I do good things in the world? Am I contributing? Uh, am I somebody you want to be around? Am I somebody you might want to emulate? Are you somebody I might want to be uh, emulate? And, and anything. So I think when there's injustice or um, a barrier to the American dream for one, there's injustice or a barrier for all of us. And so I want an equal playing field, a real fucking meritocracy. So that's the first one on criminal reform. I, I think we have to get really clear about um, the crimes that matter and the crimes that matter less. We live in a country where only six out of 10 murders are solved. And as a brother of a murdered brother, I will tell you, had my brother's killers not been caught, it would have been a source of pain every day because it, it's still a fucking source of pain. And so we need real focus on that. Two thirds of rapes in this country go unsolved. And the whole thing in the defund the police conversation that isn't happening that you and I talked about earlier is the fact that um, communities of color those statistics are much worse. Women of color are more likely to be raped and murdered than uh, white women. Uh, and so are, are, are black and men of color. And so, so I think we need a criminal justice system that is focused on solving the big crimes. If you, can, if you commit a fucking murder in this country, we're coming for you and you're going to pay a giant price. If you rape somebody in this country, we're coming for you. And you're going to violent crimes. We're going to get after you and you're going to pay a heavy, heavy, heavy price for it. And I don't give a fuck. And I, so so I, 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 I'm pretty strong on those. That said, we look at a lot of who's in our jails and it's ridiculous. And long periods in our jails. There are people who are jailed for poverty. There are many people in this country who are jailed for small pot offenses. Who gives a fuck? Somebody pass me a joint. What, what are we talking about? Putting people in jail for pot. It's ridiculous. Like putting people in jail for beer or Jack Daniels. Go fucking give yourself, yourself a, a head shake. So the incarceration in our country is, is disgusting. And there's no question. All you got to do is look at the data for five seconds. There's no question. There's injustice in the criminal justice system and in the prison system. And we have to get after it. And we have to do what Sheriff Hart in Santa Cruz said, which is his ability to fire bad cops needs to get transformed. We need more legendary DAs like the DA's office we have here in Santa Cruz who fight for what's right. Uh, we need more judges like my friend Judge Filer in Compton, California, who grew up in Compton and wanted to make a difference and decided to become a lawyer because his parents were civil rights leaders and he saw that lawyers are the one that could drive the change. And he decided to become a lawyer and ultimately he decided to become a judge in his hometown to bring justice to his hometown. So I think we need a, a reformed criminal justice system that deals with the horrifying crimes. I think we need to get our heads straight on some of these things that we say are crimes that aren't really crimes. And I think we need to give our heads a shake around the massive racial injustice that exists in much of our criminal justice system. And we have to empower those, the judge filers and the chief hearts of our country, of which I believe there are many more good than bad. We need to empower those people so that they set the standards going forward and we uh, root out the evil.
And so I think if we all get committed to social justice, if we all get committed to a level playing field so that you go to jail for the same thing I go to jail for and you stay out of jail for the same shit I stay out of jail for. That's I and we all have equal access to the American dream. And I think that's as an immigrant to this country, as a, a as a kid who got thrown out of school at 18 and started a company with nothing. I want the thing that's amazing about the United States of America is this is a place you can be born or you can come and you can, to use my mother's phrase, you can make something of yourself. We want that opportunity to be as available as deeply and as broadly to as many people as possible. And we need that opportunity to be available regardless of of any of the things that might divide us, whether they're skin color or sexual preference or any other thing you want to talk about. We all want the opportunity to be uniquely us and to forge our way and to make our place in the world. And the degree to which we have a country that enables that is the degree to which we have a legendary country and the degree to which we have a country that uh, that 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 is a barrier to that is the degree I think that we have a problem. Uh, well, Denarius, you are legendary. <laughs> Appreciate it. You as well. Is it wrong for one man to love another man? <laughs> Not how it depends on how they're loving them. <laughs> I mean, in the platonic way, if that makes you feel any uh, better. There it is. I was like, hey. You All know, right, <laughs> I can't wait to continue the conversation. And I just want you to know from the bottom of my heart, you're an incredibly inspiring young entrepreneur. And thank you for everything you're doing. Likewise. Appreciate it, Chris. You enjoy your day. You too, brother. We'll talk soon. Peace. Well, there he is, my buddy, Denarius Lewis. I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much uh, as I did. Now, I want you to know that I've known the leaders of Splunk for years, and I've watched this company grow from a small startup to one of the most important enterprise technology companies in the world. And that's because Splunk is the leader in data to everything. Data has never been more valuable than it is right now. And Splunk helps bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, and the letter E to learn how to turn data into doing. That's splunk.com slash D to E. And now, as America opens up, You need every advantage you can to succeed. And that's where my friends at NetSuite by Oracle come in. You see, NetSuite has grown from a small startup themselves into becoming the world's number one cloud business system, including finance, HR, inventory, multi-channel commerce, and much more. Everything you need to manage your business and manage every penny with precision is inside NetSuite. So whether you're doing million, a million, a million or hundreds of millions, hundreds and hundreds of millions, uh, NetSuite is what you want for the visibility and control you need in your business. Visit NetSuite.com slash different today. And there you'll be able to get up a co- you'll be able to get a copy of the new guide, Seven Actions Businesses Need to Take Now, and schedule your free product tour of NetSuite. That's NetSuite.com slash different. All right, we would like to thank Denarius Lewis. What an extraordinary, inspiring uh, uh, entrepreneur. You can check out OptimumOutreach.com, Denarius's company. That's OptimumOutreach.com. My good friends at OneLifeFullyLived.org, uh, helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. And actually, shout out to OneLife. 
Uh, I met Daenerys through Tim Rode, the founder of One Life, when we did a webinar on the kinds of things we talked about today. One Life is a nonprofit that is making a difference in inner city and around the country, helping people uh, become entrepreneurs, helping people build more resilient and powerful lives. If you want to make a difference today, crack open your checkbook and visit onelifefullylive.org. My friends at bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant. If you need an effective assistant who's dedicated to you but nowhere near you, that's bottleneck.online. Uh, check out the Cloud Wars Live podcast. Uh, as you may have seen, we recently had Bob Evans as a guest on this podcast, and I am a regular guest on Cloud Wars Live. Check it out. My friends at DeVry University have been making a, a difference for generations. Te- check out devry.edu today. And if you're in the B2B space and you want to help conquer your category, you need a legendary website. And that's where my friends at Atranet come in, building legendary b B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net today. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. We'd love it if you shared the shit out of it. We must warn you, the creators of this podcast clearly have been consuming libations. We are produced and edited by living podcast legend Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Jamie J and Sarah Knox do technical execution and awesomeness and they build lockhead.com check it out we just did an update to lockhead.com that we're kind of proud of and while you're there why not subscribe to our newsletter show notes by diane gervasio remember to spread podcasts not viruses black lives do matter uh tom waits was right listen to leonard cohen and uh, if you think education is expensive try being stupid only buy pasture raised free range eggs thank you candy dandy she keeps the trains running on time love you mom and dad and hey colin this oddcast really ties the room together doesn't it today our deepest apologies go to carson sweet ceo of cloud passage sorry carson we just ran out of time for you that's it my friends please stay safe take good care of each other stay legendary and until we're together again follow your difference